Have you ever seen someone trying to draw attention to themselves through their generosity? One time I was sitting at a restaurant and I saw a guy trying to tip a bartender a $20 bill. I say he was trying to tip because he was sort of holding the bill over the jar and he was waiting for the bartender to see him do it, to witness that act of generosity. After a few seconds of waiting, he realized that no one, beside me apparently, was going to see this act of generosity. We never do things so obviously vain, but it's in our hearts to do the same kinds of things. Over the past, past few weeks, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has given us a vision for what the kingdom looks like in the Beatitudes. He's corrected wrong understandings of the law, and he's expanded upon it. In chapter 6, Jesus addresses three aspects of Jewish religious practice, giving, prayer, and fasting. Today, we'll focus on the first of these three as we take a look at Matthew 6, 1 through 4. We'll see that the Christian way of giving isn't motivated by receiving praise from others, but by giving God praise in service to others. If you don't have a Bible this morning, our, our text can be found on page 811 in the Bible, in the pews, uh, <laughs> we don't have pews, and the chairs, under the chairs in front of you. After the service, if, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to give you one. There are some on the back table uh, back there. So Matthew 6, 1 through 4, says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We see first in verse 1 that we must reject drawing attention to ourselves when we serve others. Jesus tells us to beware of the danger of good works motivated by receiving praise for others. This word beware lets us know that Jesus isn't, isn't warning us about something theoretical or, or small or something that's far away. He's warning us that the danger is immediate. Like when you're sitting in a, pa- in a car as a passenger and a, a car pulls out in front of the car that you're in and you warn the driver, you say, watch out. Because the sinfulness in our hearts it's very easy for our concern, uh, for what others think about us, to overtake our concern for doing the right thing. Why is this the case? Ultimately, it's because we feel a need for something outside of ourselves to give our lives meaning. And oftentimes, we try to draw that meaning from what others think of us, or at least what we, we think others think of us. It's easier to seek praise from those around us rather than God because the rewards seem more tangible and immediate. And this is particularly the case in a religious community like ours, where a common set of values guides the lives of those who are a part of it. We don't want to just just to be good Christians. We are eager to have other people see us as good Christians. We want them to know we are good Christians. Blaise Pascal puts it this way, Vanity is so anchored in the heart of man that a soldier, a soldier's servant, a cook, a porter brags and wishes to have his admirers. 
Even the philosophers wish for them. Those who write against it want to have the glory of having written well, and those who read it want the glory of having read it. He's saying that everyone, including himself, who was writing against vanity, looks for reasons to brag before others. It's inescapable. This morning I'm preaching to you against the vanity of finding significance in what others think, but as he says, this doesn't free me from the danger of seeking to be impressive. I think this is a great quote, and the desire to impress you through name-dropping a 17th century Christian philosopher is in me. My flesh wants to say to you, look at what I know. Now, I may be in no danger of impressing you, and I may have bored you by quoting some old philosopher, but all the same, there's a part of me that wants you to see me as clever. And this is a spiritually lethal desire that draws our attention away from Christ. Whether you're intrigued or overwhelmed so far this morning, what I really want for you to see is how great Jesus is. Now, where I grew up, there were a lot of trees, and sometimes hanging from those trees were vines. And since there's nothing else to do with, with, with you and your friends when you're growing up in the middle of the woods, you cut the vines and you swing on them like Tarzan. <laughs> the vines were a lot of fun, but I also saw the damage that a vine can do to a tree if it's left unattended. A vine can wrap around the tree and squeeze the life out of it as it climbs higher and higher. And eventually the tree dies and the vine uses the now dead tree as a platform for sustaining its own life. The lesson for us in this is this. Our righteous deeds are like trees that grow up out of the soil of our hearts and become beautiful and draw attention to how incredible our God is. The problem is, is that in the very same soil, the roots of destructive vines are also present. These parasites seek glory for themselves through the opinions of others and destroy the beautiful tree of good works that bring glory to God. We need to beware of this reality and constantly be cutting away these vines so our works will glorify God and not ourselves. And the only tool that can cut these vines is the gospel of Christ. The forgiveness and acceptance through God, because of what his son did for us on the cross, sets the foundation that frees us to do good works in order to please God regardless of who's watching. Taking a look at verse 2, Jesus addresses the wrong way to go about giving. Now as we said, giving played a central role in the Jewish religious practice of Jesus' day, and that continued on in the Christian community. It meant that generous, ongoing giving was the norm for Christians, and that remains the case for us today. Throughout the Bible, God's people are commanded to give and to grow in giving. It's not a matter of whether or not to do it, but what motive are we, is driving us to do it, and what reward are we after? Jesus uses the metaphor of sounding a trumpet in order to draw attention to those who are being generous so that they might receive praise for it. Tooting one's horn is a familiar metaphor for us. Imagine if every time you did something good to draw attention to yourself, a horn sounded off. Are you hungry? Let me buy you a meal. Don't worry, you don't have to pay me back for that money that you borrowed. Hey Julie, I actually ran the dishwasher and I unloaded it this time. Now, most of the ways that we draw attention to ourselves are much less obvious. We devise clever ways of letting others know how great we are through small actions and subtle comments. But the motive of the heart is the same. 
Jesus points out this, that this attention-grabbing way of giving is hypocritical. And the Greek word for hypocrite here has a range of meanings. It comes from the word for play actors. Mostly it carries with it the idea of insincerity. Those who give in order to be praised by others are insincere in their giving because they're really ultimately only caring about themselves. They're putting on a show for their own benefit. In the text, there are two locations where this happens, the synagogues and the streets. And for our purposes, it's our church gatherings together and our lives in the public square. In the ancient world, the names of generous donors were inscribed on stone monuments, and churches still do this today. Sometimes to motivate fundraising, churches offer to put names on buildings, plaques, and pews. Now, as far as I know, we haven't named anything uh, at Hope after anyone. There's no Curtis Cook Kitchen or, or, or Barton Chapel. Um, and no one's going around bragging about their giving, probably because we know that this would actually have the opposite effect. We wouldn't receive praise but criticism for such activity. Maybe you're not tempted to draw attention to yourself through giving, but if not that, then what is it? What are those areas where you're tempted to be a hypocrite, a, a play actor? Where are you tempted to be seen as impressive? It could be avoiding being seen as one of those Christians by those you go to church with, you work with, or live around. In many ways, Christians have given themselves and Christ a bad name, and we should want to avoid doing the same. But we must take care that as we try to be biblical Christians that are faithful to all of the Bible, that we don't begin to feel good about ourselves when compared to Christians who failed in one area or another. We must be careful in the moment that we notice that we've got something right and somebody else has something wrong, that we don't turn it into an opportunity to draw attention to ourselves in the way that we contrast ourselves with others. If we get anything right in this life, it's because of the grace of God alone. And there's also plenty that we're going to get wrong. So let's take care that we don't replace thankfulness for God's grace working in us with a sense of self-satisfaction that we are not as bad as others. As Paul says to his letter in the Corinthians, which, by the way, was a very dysfunctional church, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When we fail to take that position, we, to stand on the grace of God alone, we'll be tempted to present a curated version of ourselves that's really only skin deep. Consider the words of Pascal again. We do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves and in our own being. We desire to live an imaginary life in the mind of others, and for this purpose we endeavor to shine. We labor unceasingly to adorn and preserve this imaginary existence and neglect the real. And if we possess calmness or generosity or truthfulness, we're eager to make it known so as to attach these virtues to that imaginary existence. He's saying that in our desire for others' approval that we create this imaginary version of ourselves and we're willing to do things that aren't virtuous to maintain it. Even when we do the right thing, we're, we're eager for others to know it and reap the benefits that come from being known as a calm person or a generous person or a truthful person. This ancient understanding of how the human heart works shows us that although social media may encourage this kind of behavior, this has been a problem for us since the beginning. If we're looking at ourselves honestly, we recognize that we can't be content with who we are because who we are is deeply flawed. Since we can't actually be good people, 
We settle for looking like good people in the eyes of others. Maybe you don't agree with me this morning. What if every thought, every single thought that you had this week was pulled from your mind and posted to your social media account? And then what if we, we lowered the screen here this morning and started looking through the things that had gone through your mind uh, this week? Talk about doom scrolling, right? Uh, would you be horrified? I certainly would. As we consider the danger for ourselves, we must also consider the danger of insincerity and hypocrisy in the world. There is no cause so pure that it eliminates the potential for hypocrisy in promoting that cause. There will always be politicians, news outlets, and corporations who will promote one cause or another in order to draw attention to themselves and profit from it. As we've said, one great cause that all Christians are called to care for, or one great cause that all Christians are called to is to care for the poor. It's a non-negotiable for us. Beyond personal giving, the specific way we're to pursue this is not clear in the scripture. And I'm no expert on poverty policy. I have no perfect knowledge into the motives of specific public figures or corporations. And I have no surefire solution to the complex problem of poverty to give to you this morning. But I am convinced that if we reject this attention-grabbing behavior in ourselves and in the world around us, we're going to end up doing a lot more help to the people who are in need. So Christian, or not this morning, are you living an imaginary life? Are you in constant fear and anxiety about what others think about you? That they'll see through the carefully created facade that you've made to the real flawed and broken you. By warning against these hypocritical attitudes, Jesus is telling us that there is another way. The way of Jesus seeks to honor God above all things, knowing that what God thinks about us is more important than what others think. In fact, God's view about us is more important than what we even think about ourselves. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller points out that we think that if we can just stop caring about what others think and only care about what we think, we will finally be free. But in reality, we don't even measure up to our own standards unless we set our standards so low that we feel bad about ourselves because we set our standards so low. Therefore, concern for what God thinks above, about us above all else is what is going to ultimately lead to our freedom. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, but with me this is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself that I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Now this isn't to mean he ignored all of his flaws or refused to see the areas that he needed to grow, but he didn't measure his value by his performance. He set his identity firmly in Christ alone, who loved him, the chief of sinners. Christ loved us too, and gave himself for us so that we can be free from the opinions of others and even of our own, sometimes crushing views of ourselves. I have a few copies of Keller's book in the foyer there, and so if you're interested in, in kind of finding out more about what he says about that, go ahead and grab that book this morning, take it for free, and read it. It's a short track that you can get through pretty quickly, and it's going to be worth your while. Now at the end of verse 2, Jesus says that those who live for the praise of man have received their reward. 
At first glance, this may not seem too bad. They get a reward. They get exactly what they wanted. Great! In reality, this is a terrifying statement. Because the reward of praise from other people really has no lasting value. It's like the vine that kills the tree. Eventually the tree rots and the wind blows. And it all comes crashing down. This kind of praise fails to give us what we need because it just doesn't last forever. And no amount of praise from others will ever be enough to satisfy our egos. Now, seeking the praise from man over pleasing God also harms everyone involved. It's harmful to those we want to serve, at least in two ways. First, it makes those in need a vehicle for our own desire to be worshipped. When this attitude is present, it obscures the reality that we're all created in the image of God and we are all of equal value before him. The result is the loss of the God-given dignity in the one who is in need. Second, if someone's motivated by their own selfish desire, their desire to be merciful will end when the rewards to self do. So we will stop trying to be righteous when it's no longer beneficial to us. The cost of being thought of as a good person is much less than the cost of doing real good to those in need. Seeking, prayer, uh, seeking praise from others is also harmful to us. It obscures the reality that everything that we have, our wealth, our intelligence, our work ethic, our family, everything, everything that we have is from God. A condescending attitude toward those in need fails to recognize our own reliance on God for everything that we've been given. And it locates our worth inside of ourselves instead of what comes from our Creator. We were made to worship it, not be worshipped. We don't deserve the honor of that position, and we can't hold up the immense weight of that either. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers us a way out of this mess. Again, in Keller's book, he points out that all of us naturally live our lives trying to establish evidence and reach a verdict that we are important and valuable. Everything we do provides evidence either for the prosecution or for the defense. So how are you establishing your significance, your importance? Are you using your standards? Are you using your own? And are you sure that you can make a solid defense? Why is it that you do the good things that you do? If you're not a Christian and you find yourself overwhelmed with the weight of determining your significance, know that you don't have to. 2,000 years ago, God declared that mankind was significant. So significant, in fact, that he would send his son, whom he loved more than anything, to die on a cross for our sins. This Jesus, who was God, gave his life to settle the question of our worth once and for all. His death made it so all who call upon his name will be saved. And we urge you to do that this morning. Maybe you are a Christian. And you struggle with the very same thing, constantly comparing yourself to others, failing to measure up to them, failing to measure up to your own standards as a professional, as a student, as a mother, as a father, as a, just a good member of society. Keller says this is like putting us back into the courtroom after the verdict has been made and the trial is over. Can you imagine if you were in a courtroom trying to argue your case long after the judge, who had actually also adopted you, had made his decision? He'd say, son, daughter, what are you doing in here? You no longer have any business in this courtroom. 
I made my judgment based not on your performance, not on your righteousness, but on the perfect righteousness of my son, Jesus. Your case is settled, so stop trying to prove your value to me. Christian, if you're stuck in the courtroom this morning or find yourself later this week, remember that the case for you is closed if you've put your faith in Christ. You are free. You're free to pursue helping others spiritually, recognize that they can leave the courtroom too through faith in Christ, and you're free to help those in physical need through generous giving. In Christ, our need to establish our goodness has become unnecessary. Therefore, we don't need praise from others to satisfy us. The desire to be praised for what we do loses its power, and we're free to do good things without the pressure of attaching our value to it. Therefore, we can reject drawing attention to ourselves when we serve others. Now, as we move on to verses 3 and 4, we see that we should embrace hidden service before the God who sees all. Jesus says this, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be in secret. He's telling us the way to avoid the hypocrisy that we see in verses 1 and 2 is to practice secrecy in our giving. The imagery of right and left stands in stark contrast to the trumpeting of our good deeds that we saw in verse 2. Our motives for giving must be completely separated from our desire for public recognition. When there's no media coverage, no love for it on social media, no praise from those directly around us, we find out how much we really care about our cause. As we've stated, the truth of the gospel is that the verdict about our significance and worth has already been made. But this doesn't mean that we're immediately delivered from the temptation to desire praise from others. I stand as a man before you who is not where he wants to be in this area. But this doesn't mean that we can't by, but this does mean that by the power of the Spirit, we can grow in this area. And Jesus says that one of the ways we can grow in denying ourselves is through the discipline of hidden service. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says this, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable ways to call attention to itself. If we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. And every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. So then, church, because of the truth of the gospel, through the power of the Spirit, let's pursue this discipline for God's glory. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, a few weeks ago, you might have seen Jesus' words in Matthew 5.16, which tell us to let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, this seems like it could be a contradiction. Are we to hide everything that we do, or are we to do everything openly out in front of everyone? It seems like it could be a contradiction, but there are two major differences. First, the object of glory in 5.16 is God, whereas here in chapter 6, the object of glory is ourselves. And second, the command in chapter 5 is plural. He's saying, let you all, as my church, shine so brightly by the positive impact that you have on, on one another and the world around you that others see what you do and give praise to God. Here in chapter 6, the pronoun for you is singular. It speaks against the desire in all of us to draw attention to ourselves in order to feel significant. 
Now you might be thinking, so what if somebody sees me doing something good? Do I automatically you know, lose the reward from God? So say if I was digging out my neighbor's car and someone that knew me walked by and said, that Matt, what a great guy. Would I have to say, oh man, I was doing a good work here, but now that you see me, it isn't one any longer, and the only reward I'm going to get is your recognition. Thanks a lot. No, others witnessing what we do doesn't automatically take away from our desire to honor God through our good works. God will, choose, God will choose to exalt some people for what they do, but this text is teaching us that we aren't to seek out that attention. It's okay to receive recognition, but it's important when we do to remember the warning of this passage. Jesus tells us to beware of the danger of giving glory to ourselves rather than God. Only when we fight against this temptation when we're praised, uh, one way we can fight against this temptation when we're praised is by constantly reminding ourselves that we we are only servants. Jesus in Luke 17.10 says this, So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are, un- we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. So when we receive praise, we can accept it, but we immediately give glory to God as servants who are doing what, uh, what they're doing as a result of who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. When we've done something good, we've only done the will of our master who has hired us out through the gospel to glorify him and to serve others. Now, some things we do will be unavoidably more public, but giving financially is pretty easy to do in secret. No one has to know how much we give in any area, whether it be in the church, to someone on the street, or to various organizations dedicated to helping those in need. As our text ends this morning, we see at the very end, in verse 4, the one that we look to for reward. God sees past the performance of the hypocrites and leaves them the reward of the vain praise of others. But he also sees the works that are done without the desire for others' attention. And he rewards giving to the needy out of a heart to glorify God. Here, God is called our Father and not our Judge. Your Father is the one who rewards. So whatever reward in mind here is past that courtroom declaration that we who are guilty are forgiven. We are saved only through the work of Christ on the cross for us. So then, if salvation is not in mind here, what is? Well, Scripture teaches that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved, but it also teaches in several places that there will be various levels of reward in the heavenly kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." So for the Christian, we're not judged here, but our work is. So are we building on what Christ has done for us with things that won't have ultimate significance? Wood, hay, and stubble. Things that will be burned up. Or are we building on the foundation that Christ has set for us with gold, silver, and precious stones that will pay dividends to us and to those we impact into eternity? So there are rewards available to us in the coming kingdom, and we can take joy in those things. But we can also take joy in the fact that God is pleased when we do 
these things. God, our Father, who has adopted us into his family, a heart of a life of giving in secret to the glory of God, who sees in secret, will result eventually when we get to the kingdom, hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's reject the temptation to draw attention to ourselves and try, strive to live in a way that these words can be said about us when we enter God's kingdom. By way of application this morning, there are a few things that you can do. First, seriously consider Jesus' warning about seeking praise from others. Realize its danger and fight against it. Pick up the Keller book and the foyer on your way out and read it or order one. Learn to recognize when you've walked back into the courtroom and run out of there knowing that your forgiveness and your significance comes from Christ. If you're in a position where you receive a lot of praise, do everything you can to fight against the temptation to receive the glory for yourself. Second, you may be discouraged this morning that no one around you seems to appreciate the work that you do. The temptation to bitterness can be strong under the weight of so many thankless tasks that you do week to week. Remember that God who sees in secret delights in you and he delights in what you're doing and that a greater reward is waiting for you than any praise that you can receive in God's kingdom. These verses tell us not to seek the praise of others, but it doesn't mean that we, none of us have any need for encouragement at all. Honoring and encouraging others is something that we're told to do elsewhere in Scripture. So consider someone whose, whose work is basically thankless and encourage them in that this week. Third, as this, one of the focuses of this passage is on giving, consider that giving is an expectation here and throughout Scripture. So where are you giving now? How might you leverage your money so that less of it is spent on things that won't last and more of it is spent on things which will pay dividends to you and to those you impact into eternity. And there are several ways that you can do this this morning. First, last week in Matthew 5.42, Jesus says to give to the one who begs from you. So we can simply follow this verse. Obviously, we have to be wise in how we go about that, but let's not be so wise that we never give in this way. Another way that you can support those in need is by giving to the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices. Our church wholeheartedly supports what they're doing to support the lives of unborn children, mothers, and their fathers. There are cards in the, uh, there are cards in the foyer with information about that ministry, so grab one of those and, and consider giving to them. Also in the foyer, we've placed some QR codes that you can scan to give to two Christian organizations that are involved in supporting the people of Ukraine. So after the service today, you're encouraged to donate to those who are, are on the ground already working or who will be working to respond to the crisis there. Finally, we serve those in need uh, in our community every week through our drop-in ministry on Tuesday and Sunday evenings. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can email John Dosti or fill out uh, the connection card that's connected to your worship guide. Um, if you're visiting with us today or there's any way that we can pray for you, please let us know on that card as well. We love uh, lifting up the needs of our, our church family week to week. So you can put those cards in the boxes at the back after the service. Church, there's a world full of people in spiritual need who need to be called out of the court, courtroom and into the kingdom of God. And there are also many of those whose mouths need to be fed and bodies who need to be healed. So let's strive together to be like our Savior who met the spiritual and physical needs of those he came into contact with. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning.
We are thankful for the teaching of Jesus that cuts right through um, everything that's external and gets right at where our hearts are at. Not because you want to hurt us, but because you want to heal us. We thank you that we stand upon the righteousness of Jesus, what he has done for us, and that that gives us value and significance. So would you teach us as a church to live proceeding from that, to live out of the courtroom, and live as children in your kingdom, laboring to glorify you and to help others. In Jesus' name, amen.